Welcome to Vanguard, a podcast of radical traditionalism. Here's your host, Richard Spencer. Hello, everyone. Today, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the program, Jonathan Bowden. Jonathan probably needs no introduction for our readers, but if you'd like one, I'd suggest that you go listen to our previous podcast on a variety of subjects, including libertarianism and Nietzsche and other things. Uh, You can also visit his website at jonathanbowden.co.uk. Jonathan, welcome back to the program. Yes, nice to be here. Well, Jonathan, today we're going to change things up a bit. We've talked about the deeper matters for the past month, and today we're going to talk about something that is both topical and pressing, and that is the Iran question, and moreover, whether we're going to see a war with Iran between either the United States and Israel uh, in, in the foreseeable future. Uh, so let me let's just start out with this, and, and I'll mention before we start the conversation that this issue is not a new one. Certainly, um, if you go back to 2003, Iran was part of the axis of evil, so-called, uh, laid out by the George W. Bush administration, and many people, including myself, assumed that there was going to be some kind of action taken at the tail end of the Bush administration. And this issue seems to rear its head every, say, year or two. Uh, people, there, there seems to be a lot of chatter on, on blogs in, in mainstream publications and the op-ed pages of major pub- publications that uh, they're about to get the bomb. We need to do something now. Israel's going to do it. America's going to do it, so on and so forth. So this is an issue that won't go away. Uh, but I do have a feeling that we are going to see a climax um, in the foreseeable future, maybe even in the next six months to a year. Um, but So let me throw out this question, Jonathan, just to, to get the whole conversation started, and that is uh, maybe we shouldn't ask, will the United States go to war with Iran? Uh, maybe we should ask, <laughs> are we already at war with Iran? Uh, you know, the, the, these past few months, there's, there's obviously been cyber attacks, uh, there have been assassinations of scientists. There are talks of major sanctions. Uh, so is this really a long-term war that's now just heating up? Yes, I think that's a correct way of looking at it. I mean, uh, states have a medley of relationships with each other, and there are all sorts of um, sort of distrait situations that states can get into with each other that stop short of armed conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, most states spy on each other. Even Western societies like France and America have set each other's spies on each other on occasions. So all societies are spying on other national state societies, depending how proficient they are at that particular game. And uh, I think Israel has certainly had a tacit war with Iran going for the last three to five years through Mm -hmm. intelligence, through selective assassination, through the use of advanced computer viruses, these Trojan-like devices that attempt to disrupt computer networks that seem to be related to the Iranian nuclear program. Um, Again, you don't know when you're on the outside of these things what is hearsay and what is not. Certainly, it was reported in relatively reputable media on this side of the Atlantic that the Bush administration looked at the option of a targeted attack on the Iranian nuclear facilities, and that it was vetoed by President uh, George W. Bush. Hmm. The reasons this was done, apparently, was because the sites were too many. There were 56 of them, according to the London Times, and they were hidden in mountains and near Shia holy cities like Gom, and certain facilities were hidden near hospitals or under Hmm. schools and so on. And there's been a proliferation in these alleged facilities since then, apparently. So I think to tacit war already, um, whereby although the threshold of actual nation-state to nation-state conflict hasn't been crossed, 
you get imperiously close to all other forms of interstate action that fall short of it. I think if you look at it the other way around, these targeted assassinations of scientists, one doesn't know how high up these scientists are, you don't know whether it's the second string ones that they can get access to in order to assassinate. But there's quite clearly a sort of Mossad death squad of a sort in Tehran that is carrying out these assassinations. They're not that often, but they're often enough to make news. There's little attempt to deny that Israel is doing it. Mm-hmm. Now, this would be regarded as terrorism uh, by uh, most societies, or state-assisted terrorism, but of course it's not seen in that way by the West. And it's all against the background of whether Iran is developing nuclear weapons. I mean, I think Iran is developing nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Every society that's ever gone for nuclear power has the nuclear weapons threshold and auction in the background. Uh, Britain, for example, developed its own independent nuclear deterrent in the teeth of opposition from the United States mm-hmm. that only ever wanted to be the one society that possessed the bomb initially. So we had to go a convoluted route to get it ourselves, which we did, followed by the French, and with the Soviet Union, of course, and major competition for nuclear threshold with the United States. Um, So nobody wants other societies to have uh, nuclear payload. Even Western societies are leery about other nuclear societies, other Western societies having them. It's noticeable the two uh, vanquished nations in the Second World War, two principal vanquished nations anyway, Germany and Japan, neither of them have gone the nuclear route, Mm -hmm. even though they could quite easily develop nuclear weapons tomorrow if either of them wanted to. So uh, I think basically there is a tacit low-level war, a sort of insurgent war going on. It's also a black propaganda war as well, whereby pressure is mounted on the Iranian currency, the real, and on the Iranian oil exports. And there's an attempt to make it as uncomfortable as possible for Iran to do business with China, with Russia, with Japan, all of which are big oil importers from the Gulf. And what they're trying to do is give Iran an option whereby if they turn away from the development of nuclear weapons as a corollary to their civic nuclear power program, there are goodies in it for them. In other words, all of these pains that are being inflicted on them at the moment would be taken off. So it's a ratcheting process. It's quite clearly uh, designed to put the maximum degree of discomfort upon the government in Tehran in the hope that they will, in the end, decide not to cross the nuclear threshold. Um, And one imagines that if they made a conscious decision not to do so, that this would be flagged up and that these pressures would cease or fall into abeyance. Right. It might, of course, have the exact opposite effect, um, which is that if if you create economic turmoil and so on and so forth and give the people of Iran a sense that they're entrenched against all these outside forces, that um, it it might have the exact opposite effect, that they would uh, go forward even more swiftly. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I do agree with you that I, I think Iran most likely is developing a nuclear weapon. Um, whether that will lead to imminent holocaust or, 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 or blowing Israel up, blowing it off the map, as a lot of our kind of crazed uh, Christian Zionists like to talk about, I, I think that prospect is, is rather dubious. But at the same time, it you know, certainly will, I guess, be a more dangerous world. Uh, with another state with one of these weapons, particularly one in in such a volatile area. And so I, I have a couple of questions to ask you from what you just talked about. But um, l- let me talk, let's go with this first one of what do you think a war would be like in this case? Um, and, and I'll mention just a few things. I think whenever the public's uh, hear about, the publics of the Western world hear about, you know, we're going to war, uh, probably images of World War II into their head and, you know, maybe even trenches from the earlier conflict or bombing of cities, all this big kind of stuff. Um, but, I, you know, one would think that uh, I, the Washington really wouldn't want to get in a conflict like that. In some ways, my view is that they probably want this kind of undeclared, unending war to go on, that they they want to kind of have their war and eat it too. They want to bomb a nuclear site, but then not have that escalate into a global conflict. 
Um, but so let, let's take up that a little bit about what what do you think this kind of war uh, between Washington and Israel, perhaps, and Iran would look like? Yes, I think there are inhibitions on the Western side, mm -hmm. which is why you haven't seen strikes up until this time. Um, Syria was developing a low-level nuclear weapon, but it was contained in one site and was relatively easy for the Israeli Air Force to bomb in one mission. Right. The Syrians always denied that they had that site, and it was in their interest to say that. Um, Similar with Saddam Hussein. This incident's been largely forgotten now. Right. Um, the Similar. Iranian nuclear capability is much more complicated mm -hmm. and is sort of spread over all sorts of sites within the country. Um, it's widely believed in Britain and Western Europe that Bush turned down a military option against Iran for all sorts of reasons, but partly because the nuclear payload and the nuclear uh, tonnage that Iran possesses is so diffuse mm -hmm. and it is such a, at a higher level of technical construction than regimes like Iraq and Syria were capable of, or even Libya, that bought a low-level nuclear prospect from Pakistan in the way that um, North Korea has done, of course. North Korea has the bomb, but it's an incredibly crude device, right. cruder even than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki weapons, and they don't really have a means of delivering it. Um, but it has changed the diplomatic ball game in relation to North Korea by virtue of the fact they possess this weapon. I think it's the deficit with the contemporary West is that Iran is an unknown factor. Iran's a far more powerful country than a country like Iraq, mm -hmm. not crippled by sanctions to the way that Saddam's regime was over 12 to 13 years prior to the invasion. This is the second Iraq war of the two um, that occurred in the middle of the second Bush presidency. Um, and Iran can hit it back in various ways, some of which are relatively subtle. One of the ways it can hit back, of course, is through oil exports. Another is that it can hit back through, allegedly, blocking the Straits of Hormuz, which mm -hmm. is an important gateway and sort of uh, nexus of the world economy. American Navy and Air Force and Army have threatened that they will intervene to keep the Straits open should the Iranian Revolutionary Guard attempt to close them in any respects. Then there's the prospect of missile strikes on Israel proper, uh, Iran has 150,000 missiles, apparently, of one sort or another, many of them quite low-level devices, but it has some big rockets, like the Shahab 1 or Shahab 2 and 3, that can hit Tel Aviv and Haifa and Jerusalem without any doubt. Mm -hmm. It also has an army on Israel's border, of course, and this is the Hezbollah militia in South Lebanon, which is their proxy force, which can force Israelis to live in uh, bunkers for many months of the year with lots of missiles coming over from the Bekaa Valley in South Lebanon. So Iran has a way to reach Israel, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really have a way to reach America or the Western world. Um, there's the danger that Iran might lash out at Saudi Arabia. Hmm. This is one of the paradoxes, of course. Iran's not an Arab country. Right. It's an Indo-Aryan country, uh, speaks Farsi, has quite an ancient civilization, Persian civilization, sees itself as the natural master of the Gulf, which intensely irritates the Arab societies around it. Um, America supported Iraq in the war against Iran. And one thing to remember about Iran is Iran's defensive posture always seems to be um, retrospective. It always seems to be retroactive. Their military posture is defensive. Mm -hmm. When Saddam attacked them, they fell back and fell back and drew his army in and in the end uh, broke it and pushed it back out of Iran and invaded Iraq. But there was, the Iran, modern Iran's rarely attacked anyone else. Mm -hmm. But all of their military thinking is how to respond to an attack upon themselves. Um, there's a danger that they could attack Western shipping in the Gulf with their missiles. And how good their anti-ballistic uh, strategy is, we, no one really knows. They bought a lot of hardware from the Russians to take down incoming advanced jets that are attempting to attack their sites. But how proficient they would be, 
how skilled the Revolutionary Guard and the elite of the Guard cuts, the the elite that guards all these installations would be, uh, how close they would be to a Western army in their fighting abilities, no one quite knows. Um, there are straws in the wind, though, um, which is probably why there hasn't been an attack. Mm-hmm. When Israel invaded Lebanon last time, Hezbollah fought with considerable savagery and considerable acuity and surprised a lot of Western analysts because they knocked out over 100 Israeli tanks on the border using Russian weaponry, Mm -hmm. which they'd been trained to fight with by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Um, And they they lived in these tunnels underground built by North Korea. All these enemy regimes uh, collaborate with each other, of course, on the principle that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. And... um, Hezbollah guerrillas or terrorists, as they'd be called in Israeli and most North American media, um, Europe's a bit different, uh, hid underground and then came up with these quite sophisticated anti-tank devices. And one of the reasons the Israeli army didn't penetrate further into Lebanon and they relied on the Air Force to do most of their uh, attacking was because they, their tanks were destroyed on the border. And to do that, you have to have special weapons to cut through the armor of Western tanks, which is very sophisticated today. Mm-hmm. And so, they had it. and they had it because, mm-hmm. of course, Iran can't buy anything from the United States beyond staplers and pencil sharpeners. Right. But it gets all of its gear from China and Russia. Right. The problem for the West, of course, is that Russian armaments are very sophisticated, but they've got a t- track of their own. Russia's always had a, a separate technological track, separate from the rest of the West. Hmm. Um, indeed is its own civilization economically. That's why they're able to put satellites into space and so on, and their satellites look nothing like Western satellites. But they work in everything, mm-hmm. and the technology in its way is very advanced. Um, but it's different and distinct. And uh, Iran's got quite a lot of it. Yeltsin sold them a lot. Hmm. Putin's been less keen on selling them stuff, it appears, because he is worried that they are after a nuclear device. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting to notice Iran's and Russia are quite close allies, but Russia does not want a nuclear-armed Iran, um, because it's just another headache sure. and a proliferation into the Muslim world of nuclear weaponry, even though Pakistan, a Muslim country, already possesses the bomb. Right. So there are all sorts of reasons why... Um, the West has been, under the leadership of the United States, has been coy about an attack on Iran. I also think the Obama administration has quite a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. I think they decided early on that they would not go for an attack. They would go for every other weapon before they an attack. Hence the economic embargo. Hence the blind eye turn to Israeli assassinations. Hence the computer viruses, which the Americans may well have assisted the Israelis in developing. Hence the targeted sanctions and the attacks on the Iranian currency Mm -hmm. and the possibility of oil embargoes. I think all of this is a stepping up of what may occur, but it's all short of an outright attack. So it's quite clear that the West believes Iran has some cards, otherwise an attack would have been launched before now. I agree, and I, I think one important point that I was hearing is that you know Iran is not just it's it's a civilization in itself it, it is a powerful state in its way um, it's not some you know banana republic or or, or or tin pot dictatorship and what that means for the US is that if they were going to do anything they would really have to go the full monty so to speak uh, I don't I think in you know the intelligence community the foreign policy making community recognize that you, you're not going to be able to swoop in and maybe bomb one facility here and there. That A, they're, they're quite diffuse and they're all over the place, but also that would, it, that would create a major conflict in the, in the region. It might even be a world conflict. Um, and that if you're going to go to war, you, if, if you're going to do an, a major violent attack, you're going to really end up going to war. And uh, that's something that I, as you point out, I think they're not quite ready to do. You know, it's interesting, just before we got on air here, I was, I was scanning the internet for some of the most recent uh, headlines, and I noticed that Leslie Gelp, 
um, who was a, you know, if, if you want to look for someone who's representative of the establishment, it might be this person um, who uh, is part of the, you know, Council on Foreign Relations and, and so on and so forth. And he actually wrote a recent article in which he was warning against any kind of major uh, attack with Iran. And uh, so it, it, it is interesting to see that establishmentarians really aren't on this. And I'll, I'll just throw out a couple more things that I was thinking about while you were, uh, you were talking. And the other one about the Obama question, and that is that there's no doubt that one of the major reasons why he was elected was just simply disgust and exhaustion with the Bush administration. I, I think people were just tired of the wars. They were tired of all the freedom is on the march talk and so on and so forth. And he was elected as the peace president. And, and obviously the world was kind of duped by this. And they gave him the, uh, you know, the, <laughs> he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize before he'd actually yes, we're not doing done anything. anything. Yes. Uh, but my, I think most of our opinions really changed about Obama uh, this past year. And uh, though he he has he has engaged in kind of a slow pullback out of Iraq, where we're, where the U.S. is effectively not no longer at war in Iraq exactly. Uh, there's still a presence there. Uh, but he also engaged in kind of mini versions of George Bush type wars, uh, where they kind of, and they kind of, you know, went in the back door with, against, uh, Gaddafi. They, they claimed that they were enforcing a no-fly zone. They never really declared war. Certainly Congress did not constitutionally declare war. And yet at the end of the day, it was regime change. And, um, you know, I'm just going to throw this out about Obama himself, is that I, I think Obama is obviously a mystery, and I, I think of, of who he is and who what, what he wants and so on and so forth. And I think some it's, it's easy for a lot of conservatives to get, you know, hot under the collar about him, and they think he's a crypto-Marxist or a crypto-Muslim or anything. I don't think he's any of those things. But he is a mystery, and I don't understand him myself. And I think, but my guess is that in his heart of hearts, he is a true leftist. Uh, and that is, he supports the brown people against the white people in any situation. I, I bet he ultimately um, uh, supports the Palestinians and does not like Israel. And uh, I, I think he, that is his, those are his instincts. Uh, at the same time, he's been one who plays ball, so to speak. I mean, he he played ball when he was in Chicago, which is you know one of the most corrupt <laughs> you know cities. It's almost like a little country on its own. It's utterly corrupt. He was obviously willing to play ball with the powers that be, and my guess is that he was willing to play ball with some of these powers uh, w within Washington, and and these include the Israel lobby. And uh, so I, I sometimes even wonder whether he wants to uh, throw them a bone, so to speak, do, do some military actions that will please them um, so long as that he can do what he really wants, which is have his uh, domestic agenda. Uh, but, but anyway, th those, are, those are kind of my responses to, to what you said, and, and you can pick up on, on some of those if you'd like. But I'd also like to ask you um, a question that, uh, that, that really hits at all these these issues, and that and that is the the why, um, you know, uh, from a realpolitik, maybe even uh, isolationist perspective, there's no possible reason why uh, we'd want to go to war. Why we as an American would want to go to war with Iran? Um, it, it would result in certainly it's going to result in some kind of economic turmoil, I higher gas prices, every, which means everything is going to become more expensive by inflation. Uh, there's really no, I mean, the likelihood of Iran uh, attacking North America is exceedingly unlikely. I, I, you know, I, I don't know why they would want to do that. And it's, and it's exceedingly unlikely they'd want to conquer Europe or something. I mean, that, that's just really not in the realm of possibilities. Uh, so it really is the Israel question. And, um, but, you know, why is Israel, why do people like Bibi Netanyahu and others and the Israel lobby in the United States, why are they so worried about Iran? They, they've been willing to make deals with them in the past. Obviously, you know, they're, they're Jews who, who live in Iran. And obviously, if, if uh, you know, uh, Ahmadinejad were a, uh, uh, some kind of fanatic 
uh, anti-Semite and who, who just wanted to wipe them all off the face of the earth. Uh, he would probably start with the Jews that are living in Iran. It'd be kind of easy to maybe round them up and kill them all. Uh, but he hasn't done that. So, you know, again, um, I, I just simply don't buy, I, I, I don't really uh, um, have much sympathy uh, with people who are uh, Muslims or, or anything, you know, much of anything Ahmadinejad says. But I also don't think he is a, uh, you know, irrational, suicidal maniac who uh, wants, you know, Armageddon next weekend or something. Uh, so why, why do you think there are major forces in Israel and in the Israel lobby that are so obsessed with Iran, that they, they think that Iran, if it has a nuclear weapon, that, that, that it's over? And, and we should, and I'll add in there, we should remember that India and Pakistan, or obviously in the region, both have nuclear weapons. That's a very volatile situation. Uh, but... You know, we're not talking about going to war with Pakistan or saying, why is this Iran? Is this just kind of the, the big kid on the block, so to speak, that could really challenge uh, Israeli hegemony in the Middle East? Or, or is it something else? Yes, I think it's more the last thing you just said. Mm -hmm. I think for a long time now, Israel has been a, a low-level superpower in its region. Um, none of the Arab states can stand against it, which is why these militias have been formed as parastatal entities mm -hmm. to take Israel on. Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in the Gaza Strip are Arab armies by proxy because there's not been a nation-state war between the Arabs and Israel since 1973, the Yom Kippur War. And it's no accident that the rest of the world and the Arab world discovered that Israel had nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. um, during that phase of history, which is a long time ago now, which is a better part of 40 years ago. That's why there has not been several general Middle East wars over the Palestinian situation, mm -hmm. uh, which rankles like anything in relation to the Arab and the Muslim world, although they're often selective about that. They take that cause up when they want to and put it on the back burner when they want to as well. But the Palestinian issue is a very live one in the whole of uh, the Middle East and to a lesser extent in Europe, where there's much less sympathy for Israel than there is in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, the, I think it's basically the strategic game will change once Iran crosses the nuclear threshold line. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the Israelis are used, in a sense, to having the whip hand over the societies around them, even though there are major difficulties for the Israelis in having this enormous restive Palestinian population, which is disarmed and yet is, is, is difficult to control politically mm -hmm. in various respects. Um, I think that the game will change as soon as Iran becomes a nuclear power. Uh, Saudi Arabia will probably insist on having a nuclear device of its own to counterbalance Persian power on the other side of the Gulf. And then you may well see a new arms race to get nuclear weapons, which is quite an old-fashioned technology now, mm -hmm. 70 years old. A lot of these countries are on the threshold of developing it. 34 states are interested in obtaining nuclear weapons, according to the United Nations. Um, most countries, like sort of Saudi Arabia, Argentina, Brazil, they all have low-level nuclear programs. They don't attract the notoriety of Iran, mm -hmm. because, of course, they're in a much less hot part of the world. And the sensitivity that Iran might attack Israel with such a device is such that it's got Israeli and some American policymakers in the lava. The track record of Iran is extremely conservative and extremely cautious. Mm -hmm. I personally would make the prediction there's absolutely no chance at all that Iran would attack um, Israel with a low-level nuclear device. Hmm. It's the political and geopolitical changes that would result from the emboldening of Iran in other areas. The fact that a second nuclear superpower would be added to Israel in the region. Turkey might well consider its nuclear options as well mm -hmm. if that was to come about. I think it's much more likely if Iran does go nuclear that uh, America would respond not with an armed attack, but by offering NATO membership to Israel, which has hmm. been widely discussed in certain parts of the European media, hmm. because, of course, it would impact upon European societies very directly. Uh, quite a few members of the NATO alliance don't want Israel as a part of the alliance. 
because they don't want to be dragged into the politics of the Middle East at all. Well, you'd have a tripwire in the Middle East, if that's the case. I mean, if they were really part of NATO in the sense of, you know, uh, attack on one is an attack on all, uh, that could be, uh, you know, we would be involved in wars every couple of years. Yes, and there's, the, there's many electorates in Europe, the German electorate in particular, and the French electorate, uh, quite different electorates. Mm -hmm. But uh, for different reasons, they've got... Um, very little inclination to get involved in all the, in all that sort of thing. The German electorate is extraordinarily isolationist mm -hmm. and doesn't even like peacekeeping in UN missions abroad. Hence the almost invisible profile of German arms in Afghanistan, for example. Mm -hmm. And the French electorate is quite anti-Zionist and quite anti-Israeli, mm -hmm. whatever the government of the day may say. Um, paradoxically, it's also quite anti-Turkish as well. There's a lot of speculation that Turkey would leave the NATO alliance if Israel joined, hmm. which would be, for many Western policymakers, a major headache, uh, because Turkey is um, a more powerful country than it used to be, mm -hmm. and used to be an ally of Israel's, of course, but the relations have soured uh, immeasurably in the last five to ten years. And it's quite possible that you could see an alliance of convenience emerge between Turkey and Iran. Hmm. They also have quite a few interests in common in relation to Kurdish minorities and other issues that yeah. uh, get them to talk to each other. So um, there are many problematical things here. It, it is a game changer. That's why it's important. That's why the ex-British Prime Minister Tony Blair goes around the world talking about Iran with the obsessionality of some of these American neoconservatives. Mm -hmm. It is an issue. It's also probably an issue that quite a few Western policy makers don't want to face. They just regard it as a sort of uh, gradgrind uh, Zionist issue that if it wasn't for Israel's squeamishness in this regard, they could have an easy time over it. Mm -hmm. Because Iran's development of these nuclear weapons doesn't threaten anyone, with the sole exception of Israel, right. who are already aren't the teeth of nuclear weapons of their own. Uh, which they can equip their F-16s with, which are up in the air uh, and would then respond to any attack upon Israel. Um, but Israel has had those weapons for a long time. What its nuclear weapons tend to do is they stabilize the situation yeah. in a retrospective manner. Uh, no one really wishes to use them because of the destructivity of these weapons. Therefore, they are forced into edgy compromises that they wouldn't really have been uh, so keen on in the past. Let's talk about that, Jonathan. This is something I was, I was thinking about while you were, you were going through these things, and that is that throughout the Cold War, um, the, the bomb, nuclear weapons, were a eminently important aspect of foreign policymaking. They're also an important aspect of the public imagination. Um, I, I, you know, I am... I guess I'm a child of the Cold War. I was born in 1978, so I, I remember the, the tail end of it. Uh, but the, the idea of nuclear winter or annihilation or bombing of cities, the, these kind of t unbelievable horrific uh, notions were, uh, were there. Uh, you know, in, in the back of people's minds. And, and, and I guess there, there was a kind of mutually assured destruction uh, idea that B between these two powers that kept people uh, kept a lot of these aggressive tendencies at bay and they, they tend to tend to fight proxy wars and say Vietnam and so on and so forth but you know Washington and Moscow were not going to directly confront one another and, and in many ways that was a, a good thing uh, but do you think we're you know after that we entered a time when people were talking about asymmetrical power you were fighting uh, vague notions like terrorism you're fighting um, uh, extremely diffuse networks like Al-Qaeda and so on and so forth. It, we, we really had a different era. And, and also you, you had uh, the whole kind of humanitarian peacekeeping aspect thrown into the mix. Uh, but do you think we might be entering a new geopolitical realm where the bomb uh, rears its head again? And it is, as you mentioned, it's, it's almost, there's almost, it's ironic or, or kind of a, you know, return of the repressed or something. You have a what is ultimately an old technology, but one that is uh, extremely powerful and devastating. That that we're going to have a new geopolitics that will emerge, um, that will uh, in which obviously Russia will play a a have a renewed importance. 
um, as as someone who they they might be skeptical of Iran gaining a weapon. I they uh, but they they certainly don't want to uh, see a war. Um, that we might have a kind of new geopolitical arena uh, if this happens. So so talk a little bit about that about what a game change would look like. Yes, I think. Um... I suppose, in a way, Israel's real nightmare mm-hmm. is that Iran would arm Hezbollah with low-level nuclear devices mm-hmm. who are right on Israel's border and who have low-level missiles that can target directly into Israeli cities. And Hezbollah, although they're totally under Iranian control, really, mm-hmm. are believed to be fanatical enough to want to carry out such attacks. Mm-hmm. That's questionable, given that they've got a role in the um, Lebanese state, that they're aligned with Christian militias now, which never used to be the case, and they have MPs in the parliament in Beirut. So Hezbollah has become very much part of the society in Lebanon now. Mm-hmm. But they do form this sheer block across the Middle East, which is, of course, the, in Western terms, we have to see it as a Protestant-Catholic split in Islam. Right. whereby if you go from the Iranian border through Iraq, you have the large Shia majority in Iraq, which, of course, Saddam Hussein kept out of power. That was the purpose of his regime, mm-hmm. irrespective of the relationship with the Kurds in the north. And then you go through Jordan into the uh, Lebanese territory, where there's a large Shia block there. And the Shia are only 10% of Muslims worldwide, but their proportion in the Middle East is much higher. And the Shia have always felt themselves kept out of power unfairly in the Islamic world, mm-hmm. uh, where the Sunni predominate, uh, as in Saudi Arabia, where the holy places are. And it appears to me that one of the unforeseen consequences of George W. Bush's war in Iraq is the coming to power of Iranian influence in Iraq, hmm. which I also think plays into many of these areas. Uh, America is well aware of the, the Iranian special relationship with the Maliki government in Baghdad mm-hmm. because the Shia in the south of Iraq look to Iran as their spiritual leaders. Uh, during the Iran-Iraq war, many Shia in the south wouldn't fight for Saddam Hussein against their brother Shias in Iran, mm-hmm. even though there is an ethnic difference between Arabs and, and Persians. So the interesting thing is that Iranian influence has come to power in Iraq under American guns. As soon as you switch from the Sunnis to the Shia inside Iraq, which for reasons of democratic legitimacy you had to do, because the Shia are 60% of the Iraqi population and can't be kept out of power in a government which claims to be democratic, America was facilitating Iranian influence throughout Iraq. Um, and that's one of the many, many ironies of this uh, war, that this enemy that's construed as fanatical and monomaniacal in a certain respect, mm-hmm. the Iranian one, has actually had a license to come to power or has considerable influence in the new Iraq that was created by American weapons. All these multi-party elections that the Americans insisted on, all of them enshrined uh, various forms of Islamic power that tended to be Shia. And there's been two versions of Shia power since the Americans went into Iraq. But one was more secular, and the one that's in power at the moment is slightly more religious. And there's the Sadrists, the power block of Mohammed al-Sadr, the... Uh, a Shia who's believed to have quasi-divine powers by some of the poverty-stricken Shia in the slums of Baghdad, such as in Sadra City. And he has a political movement that was always anti-American, unlike the rest of the Shia who collaborated with the United States when Bush went in because they wanted to see an end to Ba'athist rule. The point of Ba'athist rule was to keep the Shia out of power and to keep the oil wealth for the Sunni minority. And Saddam did that quite successfully. Uh, one of the great mysteries, of course, is why the United States and Saddam fell out. Yeah. Because Saddam was a keen client of the United States, and for a long while was America's man in the Gulf. Right. Well, and was back against Iran in the extraordinarily destructive war that the two countries fought, the Iran-Iraq war. 
I think there when was... Saudi Arabia and the United States armed Iraq to the teeth under Saddam Hussein. Right. That's where he got his chemical weapons from uh, to use against the Iranians. Well, there's a, a, an infamous episode in which a diplomat, I believe her name is April Gillespie or or something yes, like that's that. Right. And she actually sent, uh, or she might have even told Saddam in person, I, I think at least she sent him a... Uh, a message uh, that said uh, the U.S. will look the other way if you decide to take actions against Kuwait. Um, that was obviously a kind of... Well, I guess it was yeah, so many I mean, ways Saddam was always very aggrieved. Saddam was always very aggrieved. Yeah. He believed the United States had given him the right to retain Kuwait as an Iraqi province. Historically, Kuwait has been an Iraqi province in the past. All of these countries are, have got interchangeable borders because of the Arab notion of a caliphate. Nationalism is a relatively new construct, right. although national feeling has always existed. Mm -hmm. There's always been something of an Iraq. There's always been something of a Syria. There's always been something of an Egypt. Mm -hmm. But nationalism in the Western sense is a relatively new import into the Middle East. That's why the most radical Islamists, of course, don't believe in any of these state societies. Right. They want a caliphate of Islamic power that crosses all boundaries and uh, links all Arabs and Muslims together in one brotherhood. Well, I actually, um, and of course actually, they have had that at certain times in their past. Yeah, it was actually Christians who founded the Ba'ath Party, I believe. So in some ways, the, the kind of nationalism that uh, Saddam represented was a bit of a Western import. Um, yes, that's right. It was modeled on his own personal fascination with Joseph Stalin. Georgia is not that far away from Iraq, socialism in one country, of course, right. and the sort of Arab fascism. Right. Um, Christian uh, intellectuals and ideologues attended the Nuremberg rallies in the 1930s, and Ba'athism in Iraq, in Syria, in Jordan, where it never really took off, although it's influenced the Hashemite monarchy, and in Egypt under Nasser um, mm -hmm. in the 1950s. Um, all of those were influenced by European types of fascism that went into the Arab world and were largely um, the product of minority sensibilities. The Syrian minority mm -hmm. that rules in Syria, which is under immense strain at the moment, it's interesting to note that the West is tacitly supporting the opposition in direction inside Syria. 5,000 are alleged to have been killed by the United Nations during the course of this fighting as a sad son clings on. Mm -hmm. And yet that Ba'ath party in Syria represents a tiny sliver of the Syrian bourgeoisie hmm. and excludes the Sunni from power, which is the major complaint of his opponents. It's not that it's not a democracy or a functioning Western society. It's that the Sunni, it's a natural majority, are excluded which in the end is untenable. You can't really run a society when a large ethnic and cultural majority is excluded perpetually from power. Um, so this is why you have, a, you have a shadow diplomacy in the Middle East as well. Although all of the tension with Iran is coming from Israel, and the tension in Washington is because Patrick J. Buchanan once said that um, Middle Eastern policy was a Zionist-occupied area, um, that's largely true. That's what that tension is. That's what mm -hmm. the gritting of teeth is about this issue. But there are also many other corollaries as well, because the Sunni power in the Middle East doesn't view the Shia centered in Iran with any great favor at all. And uh, Saudi Arabia is as keen as Israel for Iran not to develop nuclear weapons. But I think Iran will develop nuclear weapons in the next two years. I think they will test a device. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put my head on the block now. I'll test a device this time next year. Well, I think you might the world very well will be change. Right. I think you might very well be right about that. Uh, let me ask you to, to bring our conversation to a close. Uh, let me ask you an issue about the world order. And I guess this gets back to the game change that has been a theme throughout this discussion. And uh, since 1944, uh, we, one could say that we've had a, a U.S.-run world order with the dollar as the king currency. It's a um, universal reserve currency that it's used in international transactions. It's used, most importantly, perhaps, in, in purchasing oil and so on and so forth. And that we, um, and that, uh, there was obviously a Cold War that, that was a significant issue, but it's, it's generally emerged that you've had either maybe one or two policemen, but, but it's been a kind of American world order. And certainly after the end of the Cold War, when there was no more competition for this, 
Um, for the past 20 years, we've, it, the United States and Washington has been a kind of unipolar power. Uh, there's really not, there might, you know, France might dislike a lot of things Washington does, uh, might agree with France and a lot of those things, but there's no real challenger. There's no one who could really take Washington to the mat. Um, however, do you think that maybe, you know, all things come to, and come to an end at some point, all empires die? Uh, do you think at some point that, that we're witnessing the end to this world order that really began with the Bread and Woods Accord, at least in my opinion, in mm -hmm. 1944, um, that that you know the, the, the that we're going to actually witness that in the in the foreseeable future. Maybe maybe this will maybe this will occur economically. Maybe this will occur as a dumping of the of the dollar or just a, a kind of withering away of the dollar in terms of importance, that's certainly happening uh, in one way. Maybe Europe will become a kind of superpower. I might be a little more uh, doubtful about that. Um, maybe we're just entering a new paradigm in, in which uh, China is going to become a superpower and, and not just uh, be a kind of isolationist middle kingdom, but really uh, want to have a major say in the running of the world. Uh, so, so what do you think about some of these issues I've, I, I've brought up here? Do, do you think that um, particularly if if uh, they do, if the United States and or Israel goes to war with Iran and it creates some kind of horrible world conflict um, that I, I certainly don't want to see, but uh, that this might actually be the kind of last hurrah of, of the American empire. It, it might really express the fact that the paradigm is changing and the empire is crumbling. Yes, I think so in many ways. I think America, I think the election of Obama himself mm -hmm. is a postscript to a period of high American neo-imperialism. Mm -hmm. I think the Obama presidency is a signaling in complicated ways that the American public wants to, in a sense, release itself from the chain mail of the imperial legacy. There's an, it's an important historian, isn't there, called Stephen E. Ambrose, mm -hmm. who wrote a book called Ascent to Globalism about America's emergence from right. isolationism to play a major role in the, the world from the Second War. It's, of course, uh, there was a desire to do it after the First World War, right. but the political forces inside the United States forced an end to the Wilson dream, and America turned isolationist again until the Roosevelt administration of the 30s and 40s. So I think you're seeing a moderation of the American power base. I think you're seeing the ability the United States has to project power being quite severely curtailed. It may be that the Iraq adventure was the last time that America will fight a major Vietnam-style war, mm -hmm. uh, whereby you actually try and occupy a country. And even then, of course, America seemed surprised that they were faced with an insurgency during 2006, mm -hmm. when America lost about 4,500 men, when they had to fight guerrillas, national liberationists, Islamists, terrorists, whatever word you want to use, on the ground. They were surprised that they had to fight that when it was obvious that when you go into these countries, as soon as you get down on their level technologically, you may have big jeeps and big armored personnel carriers and Humvees and this sort of thing, but you're going to be fighting men who are technologically on a level with you, at least approximately so, yeah. and you will take casualties. There's just no way. If they're armed with Chinese and North Korean and Indian and Russian weaponry, you're going to take casualties. And um, there's no way they would get involved, in, in my opinion, in an intervention in Iran that led to an invasion and occupation. Mm -hmm. That could even lead to the defeat of the United States militarily, actually, um, if they were foolish enough to go down that path. Any war with Iran would be conducted by missiles and by aircraft um, and by taking down their command and control structures and uh, by bombing their nuclear sites. Um, and protecting Israel from retaliatory revenge by Hezbollah and by Iranian missiles. They might not uh, have a choice. They might not if it got more and more aggressive. Right. If the Saudis intervened, 
if uh, Iran blocked the Straits of Hormuz in a slightly desperate action uh, to uh, sort of destabilize the world economic situation, mm -hmm. which would um, immediately impact upon countries like Japan and China that import a lot of their oil through those straits. Um, you've got the risk of escalation. My mind is that the Iranians are cautious and will not go in for that. And will... the problem is that, that the Americans have is that they will be involved if Israel attacks Iran on its own. Mm -hmm. Israel can't do it on its own. It has to refuel its jets. It's an enormous round trip for them to get back from Iran. And they've got to be refueled in the air by American tankers. And only the USAF has the ability and the structures to make the Israeli operation work if they're to really hurt the Iranian nuclear effort and to really put it back many years, mm -hmm. which would be the object of the exercise. So America's involved if Israel goes alone. Uh, I don't think it will happen personally. I think the Obama administration has, has, has said no and uh, will go up to the line of war but will not cross war. Hmm. If a Republican is elected later this year, I think that can change. Yes. So I think that the, the option of no war with Iran unless it's an accidental one that they all stagger into because they don't want it and it just happens the way the first World War happened through a concatenation of unavoidable steps. But at each point in the step change, people said that they didn't want the ultimate outcome. Mm -hmm. The relationships that Iran has with the West are very uneasy. Mm -hmm. Western policymakers don't understand the Iranian mindset and they certainly don't understand Western policymakers. Uh, the Soviet Union and the United States understood each other intimately, and that's why they could um, finesse their nuclear power relationship, whereas America and, uh, and Iran could stumble into a war quite easily just through misunderstanding what the other side wants. Mm -hmm. That could happen. But I think if you have a Republican president from the tail end of next year, and Iran is still a year away from developing a nuclear device. I think you could see attacks on Iran in 2013. So it's very much dependent on whether you have a regime change inside the United States. Yeah. And it could become a very big election in the, you know, issue in the United States if it becomes apparent to the U.S. population that if Obama is defeated, it will basically mean military action against Iran. Whereas if he continues in office, there is a probability that it will stop short of all-out military action unless there's some precipitous shove from either side that gets people involved in a conflict that really isn't in their interest. And that can happen quite easily when people are heavily armed and very propagandistically militated against each other, particularly as Israel is um, extraordinarily twitchy and paranoid about any threat to its security. Uh, well, there isn't a real threat to its security. The threat to Israel's security is the democratic time bomb in Israel itself. Yes. The Arab birth rate is the threat to Israel. Uh, armed groups, uh, no matter what they politize on the internet, uh, no matter what Ahmadinejad may say in student speeches at Tehran University, um, are really neither here nor there. Their threat is much closer to home. It's the loss of political capital. Uh, amongst the tender-hearted liberals of the West who no longer look upon Israel with favour. Yeah. It's the gradual creeping non-Zionism of European policy formation and the reorientation to moderate Arabist viewpoints across Europe and the Arab birth rate inside Israel and in the territories uh, that could frustrate Israel's course 60 to 70 years from now. Um, armed groups like Hezbollah and Hamas are useful poster boys, but they don't threaten Israel's existence at all. Right. Uh, but, but people can get very irrational. Well, in some ways, to go to what you're saying, in some ways military action is a kind of irrational, angry response uh, towards something else. And, and, and that is, you know, what you're saying, the, the real threat to Israel is the demographic one. I, I, noticed, I noticed that in a, um, in a book that I, I actually was involved in publishing and editing, uh, Richard Lenz, um, most recent study of the Jewish people and Jewish intelligence, um, he, uh, which is hardly any kind of anti-Semitic volume, uh, but at the same time, at the, at the end, uh, Richard is quite gloomy about any prospects uh, for the Jewish people. He, he thinks that Israel is going to be 
uh, demographically overwhelmed and that, uh, that, that intermarriage uh, within the West is, is also going to attenuate uh, any kind of Jewish presence. So, um, uh, so in some ways, in that when I getting back to what I was saying before, if the New World Order of the U.S. that's been with us since the end of the Second World War comes to a close, it, it might really bring to a close uh, Jewish power and Israeli Zionist power uh, as well. And let me let me add just one more thought that I think is worth mentioning. Uh, and that is that there was a burst of isolationist sympathy that came after the the Wilson administration um, in the uh, very late teens and 1920s. And a, a lot of people might associate America First exclamation point that movement with uh, with the Tea Party or you know backwoods yahoos or something like that. But it actually wasn't like that at all. It was actually founded at Yale University. It was is in a way a kind of last gasp of the old WASP establishment um, that didn't actually mm. want to be globalist and, uh, uh, and, and wanted to have, uh, wanted, wanted to stay home and have a, uh, you know, a, a prosperous kind of laissez-faire uh, America. And it was in, in some ways the last gasp of that. And, and, and that whole ruling order has since uh, gone by the wayside. We've had something quite different in the United States. Uh, since the Second World War, but we, you know, if you think about the demographic aspect of that, of um, a WASP elite was the core of America First. In some ways, you've got to think about a a new issue that America is facing, and that is a a very chaotic demographic uh, that's that's emerging. If it's not already here, um, and that is one that is Latino. Uh, that is one of which uh, the black population is not growing um, to, to, to any major degree. However, it is certainly empowered um, and pandered to. And so it, it's, it's kind of a, it's a question, and it's one I certainly don't have an answer for, of how this demographic situation will alter foreign policy. It might well make, might totally reorient it. It might, uh, it might eventually make, uh, America isolationist. It might reorient America towards uh, South America. <laughs> I, I, you know, I have uh, I, I have no idea. And you know, and I think demographics are key. Certainly, p foreign policy is one of it's perhaps the most elite aspects uh, aspect of politics. It's it's created by uh, think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations and so on and so forth. It's it's done uh, uh, most average Joe types don't really understand what's going on or, or want to know. Uh, they might, you know, get excited about a war, but uh, but they're not certainly involved with the nitty-gritty. But, you know, if, if America is going to remain a mass democracy, uh, at some point that demographic uh, element is going to uh, hold sway. And, uh, you know, we, we might have a, in the, in the coming 25 years, we might have a new elite, we might have a totally uh, reoriented foreign policy. That's something that, that's hard to imagine now uh, when we watch, you know, some of these uh, horrible uh, presidential so-called debates uh, amongst Republicans in which they each, you know, try to outdo one another in <laughs> promises of, of, of start, you know, bombing Iran tomorrow morning. Uh, so we might have something uh, quite new uh, you know, in, in the foreseeable future. Well, well, anyway, Jonathan, as we bring it to a close, do you have any, um, uh, parting shots on that issue? Yes. I think, um, I think the Obama presidency is in a strange way, a default position for lots of things that are coming. Mm -hmm. I think, and which are already there. Uh, it, it, he's hedged in by all sorts of forces and he took the white house with the support of traditional, center-left democratic power structures, there's not much he can do about that. Mm -hmm. However, his instincts are to do deals with the Muslim world. His instincts are to do deals with Latin America. Mm -hmm. His instincts are to do a deal with the softest of the Palestinians uh, to attain a sort of two-state solution along social democratic lines in what social democrats would like in Western Europe. Um, his instincts are completely uh, against uh, the Christian Zionist warriors amongst us. His in this is my reading anyway. Mm -hmm. His instincts are not particularly hegemonic in, in power terms as regards the US and the rest of the world. I think his instinct is to make America more like the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And as the world has gone to live in America, 
the one meshes with the other. I think America may well emerge in with the rest of the world. It will become more like Latin America, and it will have a foreign policy which is closer to that of the United Nations, common denominator. Notice the globalist American elite of the last phase in American history has been at war with the perceptions of Latin America. Latinos always favor countries that the United States is against. Right. There was immense sympathy even for the Axis powers in the Second World War throughout Latin America. Hmm. Why? Because they were fighting against the United States. Hmm. There was a certain partiality for Japan. There's been a certain partiality for the Arab cause in Latino societies. That's why all of these countries, that, the whole of Latin America, recognized this sort of de facto Palestinian state that isn't in these recent maneuverings at the United Nations, something that was totally opposed by America, uh, by most of Western Europe, and by the usual suspects, and of course by the Obama administration. But we're talking here about Obama's instincts rather than what his actual policies are and what his administration does. I think you will see the Democratic Party become crypto-isolationist over time, hmm. and you will see a reversal. You've already seen a reversal throughout the 20th century where the Democrats and Republicans changed places, and the Republicans became the party of the white South, when, of course, going back to the Confederacy, they were utterly hated right. in the white South. So you've seen many reversals in the American politics, and you could well see another one. Uh, there's also a debate which, from a European perspective, what Obama's instincts may amount to appears saner. What worries Europeans are the trigger-happy views of the Christian Zionists who want to go to war all the time yeah. in order to impose their values on the Middle East. There's probably not a viewpoint in America which is more unpopular in Europe than that one. And yet in the American heartlands, uh, there's probably not a viewpoint which has as much salience as the view that you're protecting the United States of America by intervening in all these countries that most Americans have little knowledge of or little interest in. Jonathan, thank you for being on the program once again. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks very much. Bye for now.